It's good to be with you this morning, friends. God's good word that we're going to take a look at this morning comes from Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20, and I encourage you to keep your word open there as you, we take a look at this very famous failure. He was already an old man when God asked him to pack up his bags and leave his home country. He was 75. Can you imagine at 75, packing up everything you own and moving? And he didn't just move a little ways. He moved hundreds of miles with only what he could carry on his back and the few camels and other animals that he had. And he didn't know where he was going. He moved hundreds of miles, and he didn't have a place to go to at the other end. He ended up in a mountainous region just outside the city that we would, we would now call Jerusalem. He lived there for a while. He gained a lot of wealth, cattle, flocks, all of those things. But he didn't really settle down. He was a nomad still. When a famine came, he traveled down to Egypt. It was just a miraculous turn of events that managed to get him out of Egypt because the king of Egypt decided that he had it in for him. After he came back, he gained more sheep and, and cattle. He ended up getting into an a army, a, a battle, I guess you'd say, with another four kings. Somehow he and his 300 trained men, his own private mercenary army, managed to win a battle against four kings. Nobody still quite knows how that one worked out. It didn't take very long before he found himself, though, in the same spot. He was still a nomad. This time he traveled down to, to the land, we call it like Saudi Arabia today, probably, but the land of Gerar. He lied again, or he told again another story about his wife. Again, it was a miraculous turn of events that got him out of that situation. He came back out of that country, and through some strange turn of events, that man, a nomad, traveled hundreds of miles, no home, no family, he ended up having a son. His family had more sons. And he has now become the father of not one, not two, but three of the world's greatest religions. And the man, of course, I'm talking about is Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarah. That's who we're talking about. And today we want to specifically talk about this instance in his life when another man took interest in his wife. That man was named Abimelech, and he was the king of Gerar. The king of Gerar. And we don't know all of the historical development, but somehow this man who was the king of Gerar, he was a leader of the nation that would eventually become the Philistines. Now here's where the story gets interesting. I don't know if you know anything about the history of the Israelites and the Philistines. You know anything about that history? It was very antagonistic, wasn't it? They were constantly fighting. And how did it all start? This one event right here today. It's this one event. It is these events right here 
that soured the relationship between the Israelites and the Philistines for many years to come. And that all started with the story that Abraham told Abimelech. So what story did Abraham tell Abimelech? Well, you can hear it in this, in this lesson. Uh, Abraham told Abimelech a version of the truth, and we get that version of the truth in the dream that Abimelech had. Here's the dream that Abimelech had. It said, God came to Abimelech in a dream one night, and he said, you're as good as dead because of the women, woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? And then we hear later, because, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. What's going on here? Well, Abraham told Abimelech a version of the truth, didn't he? He told them some of the truth. Abraham practiced what we call endogamy. Many of the people of the ancient world practiced something like it, especially for some reason the descendants of Terah and the people from like the Persian Babylonian era area they, they all like to practice this endogamy they would marry a relative it wasn't quite incest uh, incest is you know marrying a, a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt a close relative he married at least what this story says a half sister and, and so when Abraham and Sarah told the Philistines that they were brother and sister, that was partially true. Can you imagine doing that, though? Can you imagine saying that? I've been married to my wife for, for 15 years, and we've definitely had, you know, our ups and downs, but we have deep love for each other. I have never introduced her and said, this is my wife, Rachel, and we're like, um, this, is, this, is, this is Rachel, right? I'm sorry, I was not sure. This is, this is Rachel. And we're like, we're girlfriends, boyfriends. I've never said that, right? Well, I never said, yeah, this is Rachel and she's just this cute girl that I hang out with. Uh, I don't even, I, I definitely don't say this is Rachel and I don't really know her. Who's she? I've, I've never seen her before. No, I don't do any of that, do I? What do I say? I say this is, this is Rachel and she's, she's my wife. I can't imagine it. What's going on here? Why would Abraham say she's my sister? Abraham and Sarah are in this territory for the, the king of Gerar. Now, Abraham at this point had, had gained some major influence and, and power. We know that he has more than 300 trained men in his own personal army. Any of you got a personal army of 300 people? No? <laughs> Maybe you got enough ammunition for 300, some of you, but not, not a personal army of 300 I suspect that when Abraham went into the land of Gerar, that if he had said he was married, the king of Gerar almost certainly would have seen him as competition. The king of Gerar would have looked at Abraham and said, here's a guy who's coming to find a new place to call home, and Abraham is going to set himself up here. He's going to take over my land. He's going to have kids. They'll have kids. They'll spread out, and I'll lose all of my land and all of my territory. And when Abraham then came down and he told the king of Gerar, she's my sister, in an instant, all that competition went away. 
It's like in all the movies when the new running back moves to town. Ever seen in all the movies, you know, when the great new sports figure moves to town, the local hometown quarterback, how does he feel when the new running back comes to town? He feels threatened. He says, somebody's moving into my territory. I'm the popular one around here. I'm the important one. And then all of a sudden, the new running back says, but this is my sister. And then pretty quick, the, the, the local quarterback, the hometown quarterback, and the sister, they're dating, aren't they? And now what happens? All the competition goes away, right? Because now suddenly the local quarterback and the running back, they're best buds just because the quarterback is dating the sister. But can you imagine what would happen in that situation? What if, what if there was nobody to date? The competition would go on. Or, or what if the court running back came in and he said, hey, this is my girlfriend, I'm dating her, yep, we're together. And the quarterback would have said, hey, this is too much, I can't handle this. That competition would have gone on and on. See, this, there would have been nothing to ease the attention. This is what's happening. One of the things that is so fascinating about Abraham, Abraham is this guy, right? He's this incredible guy. He is the guy who let his nephew Lot decide which land he would get. And when Lot took the best land, Abraham, despite the fact that he was the uncle, he took the bad land. Abraham is the guy who, when his nephew Lot got captured, he raced off with his own private army to rescue his nephew. Abraham is this guy who intervened. He asked God to save Sodom and Gomorrah for only 10 people. But you know when Abraham has problems in life? He slept with his mistress. He let his wife abuse his mistress. He let his wife send his own, her own servant and her son away. And then this story. And did you hear how, how messed up the problem had gotten? This is how Abraham thought his wife should love him. He said, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere you go, say of me, he is my brother. That's verse 13. I want you to think about that for a second. Maybe you don't like that verse right away. I don't know. I don't really like it, right? Maybe you don't like it because it says, here's how you should love me. Because Abraham is teaching his wife how to love him. I, Maybe you don't know this, or maybe you don't do it in your marriage. It's okay to tell your spouse how to love you. We ask all the time, how do, I how do you want to be loved right now? Do you want a hug? Do you want me to cook you dinner? Do you want a coffee? Or should I just go away? How do you want to be loved? Right? That's okay. So maybe you don't like that part right away, but it's, it's really okay. But, but think about this example. Imagine I came to you and I said to you, here's a thousand bucks. Here's a thousand bucks. And you'd say, oh, cool, thank you. It's a gift just to you. It's a gift. Isn't that wonderful? And you say, really? It's a gift? I say, yep, you just have to spend it on me. <laughs> Wait a second. That's not much of a gift. What would you do if I said that to you? You'd probably throw it back in my face, wouldn't you? And you'd say, you go spend the money on yourself. Isn't that what Abraham does to his wife here? He says, here, yeah, I love you. Here's how I want you to love me. Do exactly 
and throw this love back at me. You know the word for love here that Abraham uses? The word he uses for love, he doesn't tell Sarah, here's how you just express your passion and your desire for me. He doesn't look at Sarah and say, here is how you express your friendship and your, your abiding appreciation for me. He looks at Sarah and he tells her, here's how you express your faithfulness to me. Here's how you express your commitment for, to me. Here's how you express the fact that you will never leave me or forsake me, no matter what we go through in life. Abraham didn't give her a gift when he told her, I love you. He gave her a loan. He gave her a loan and he made her repay it time and again in his life. And that's the real failure. Abraham failed to know love. He didn't know love. He didn't know what love really is. He didn't know what love really feels like. He didn't know what love looks like. Abraham lied, lived a lie about love. And then do you see what happens? Is because Abraham lived a lie, then Abraham made Sarah live a lie. Sarah lived a lie about love, and so Abimelech lived a lie about love. And because Abimelech lived a lie, then all the people of Gerar lived a lie. They almost all died. All because Abraham lived a lie of, about love. This is what happens, friends, when, when you and I live a lie. This is what happens when you and I don't live the truth. People die. But I want you to see how God gives them the truth. Look at verse 7 in this story. At the end it says, verse 7, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. I want you to think about that sentence here. Look at what God says. He says, this man, Abraham, is a prophet, and he'll pray for you. I want you to know that this is the only time in the whole book of Genesis that somebody is called a prophet, and somebody will pray. It's the only time the words are uh, prophet and pray are used in the book of Genesis. And who gets to do it? The man who can't tell the truth about love. <laughs> Isn't that funny? God lets this guy who is a liar, who is living, literally living a lie and teaching other people to live a lie, God lets this man who is living a lie pray that Abimelech and his whole family would be saved. Why? Why would he let this man live a lie and still pray that Abimelech would be saved? And the Bible's answer, the Bible, of course, would tell us is because there's a far greater prophet that's still to come. It's the prophet who showed up at that widow of Nain and her tomb. It's the prophet who came along and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was not just a prophet who could speak the truth. He was the truth, and he brought it right down into their lives. I want you to think about a, a difference here. Let me give you a little illustration to just think how great this is. My family and I, you know, we'd like to try to sit down every morning and read the Bible together as a family. We work through about a chapter. And, and now even my littlest son, two-year-old uh, AJ, he will, he will ask that he can have a Bible to read along with us. He'll say something, you know, my Bible, my Bible, or something like that, right? Of course, can he read the Bible? No, he can't read the Bible. He can't read any of the words of the Bible. But he speaks because he thinks that it's great. Now, does he, does he know at all what he's talking about? 
Absolutely not. But God lets him speak that truth. At the same time, we get to be the parents and we get to speak the truth into their lives that says this is God's word and this is the best thing that you're going to ever find. And in a far greater way, God lets you and I, just like he let Abraham, be this man who prays and speaks the truth into Abimelech's life, all because there is a far greater prophet behind us, the one who really knows the truth, the one who died to make that truth known for you and me and proclaim that truth to the world. Friends, your sins and mine are truly forgiven. They are actually forgiven not because we make up the mind to forgive people, but because Jesus has declared, I forgive you all your sins. It is finished. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins are gone. That's the truth. That's the truth that you and I get to declare now and forever, that truth that our sins are actually gone. Know that truth. Know that truth, each of us, and you and I, we will live. That's what we get to do. Friends, do you see what happens here? It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because Abraham lived a lie. And because Abraham lived a lie, Sarah lived a lie. And because Sarah lived a lie, Abimelech lived a lie. And because Abimelech lived a lie, then the whole kinds of people almost died. Know the truth and will live. I want you to realize, I want us to see what happens here. You see what happens in our own lives? It's really easy to think that Jesus is something like the Trojan horse. You guys know the story of the Trojan horse? Everybody remembers the story of the Trojan horse. It's one of the most famous failures in history. Here's a, a, your example of a famous failure. Uh, the Trojan people, the Trojan prince, snuck into Greece and stole the queen of of Greece. They took her back home. You can imagine how the Greek king felt about that. What did the Greek king do about it? He went to war. I want my queen back. He went to war to get his queen. Except they couldn't break into the walls of Troy. And so what happened? They made a massive horse and they pushed the horse into the city. The Trojans thought it was a gift and they took it and they had a party. But that night, that night what happened? The soldiers broke out of the horse, the Greeks broke into the city, and everybody died. You know, and it's easy to think, isn't it, because you and I, we get lied to so much that somehow Jesus is like this Trojan horse, right? Like he's a trick. That if you take him into your life, that if you trust him, that if you depend upon him, that you rely on him, that, that sometime along the way there's going to be this army that breaks out and destroys you. And it's easy to feel like that, isn't it? Because, because you look at all of the sorts of things that happen in the Christian church and in Christian families, and you say, that person said they were Christian, and now they're beating somebody else up. And you say, that person said that they were Christian, and now they're running around shooting people. And, and that person said they were a Christian, and they're they're just yelling at everybody. And that person said that they were a Christian, and they're cheating, and they're lying, and they're robbing, and they're deceiving. And you say, look, Jesus must be kind of like a Trojan horse. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that? It's easy to feel like that. It's easy to feel like 
Like, having Jesus in your life is just going to be this big trick. But friends, I, I would put to you that Jesus is not a Trojan horse. There is a lot more, though, than sees the eye. Jesus is like a gobstopper. Remember the everlasting gobstoppers? Right? You look at a gobstopper and you start sucking on the outside of the gobstopper and, and it's layer after layer of hard candy. And you're like, am I ever going to get to the middle? Am I ever going to be done? It's true that there's all kinds of variety. There's all kinds of depth with Jesus. But he's solid all the way through. He's the truth the whole way through. And you'll never discover as you get into Jesus more and more that there's lies or there's deception. You're just going to find the truth the whole way down. The whole way down. And it will do more for you and for your life than you ever imagined. It's you and I who live the lie. And we need to stop buying into the Trojan horses in our lives we need to stop accepting that we have found the truth and realize with humility that we have often failed to live the truth and take that gobstopper into our life and just suck on it and devour it until we've got Jesus the whole way through. Know that truth. And not only will you live, know that truth and we'll all live. Know that truth so we can all live. Let's pray for that, huh? Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word without a doubt that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are that great prophet who came to Nain and proclaimed the word to the dead son, stood up, and the dead son got up. And we pray that we would proclaim the same truths, that people would have life and forgiveness because you are the way, the truth, and the life. Forgive us for, for believing the lie and living in the failures of, of passing on those lies to other people. Let us know and believe the truth. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.